0: Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, and between the book and the podcast, we're having smart conversations about pregnancy, parenting, healthcare, feminism, culture, the whole damn thing. I am recording this the day before Thanksgiving, and I couldn't be happier. I'm having a great day. I did an appearance this morning on AM Northwest on ABC, and I got to talk about seven steps to becoming an advocate. I'm a big believer that most people want to make a difference. They want to help make the world a better place, especially in light of the election. Lots of people want to get their hands on the government and drive. The problem is they don't know how to start. So that's what I talked about on TV today, and I'm really grateful to have had that opportunity. Um after that then I get to talk about this talk with this week's podcast guest Dr. Neil Shaw. and I just know we're going to have so much to talk about. Um before I get on the line though it's the day before Thanksgiving and I want to say thank you to all of you who are helping us keep this conversation going. Um you know this podcast is growing and it's because you're listening, sharing and bringing others into the conversation. Be sure and email me if you have any questions or ideas for upcoming pods. And once again, thank you. I really mean it. Now, let's get Neil Shaw on the line. Hello. Hi, Neil. It's Jeannie. How are you?
1: I'm great, Jeannie.
0: Good to hear from you. Yeah. So, um, I'm calling you Neil because you and I know each other, but... You know, let's let's be official about who you are. You are Dr. Neil Shah. Um, can I read your bio? Yeah,
1: sure. Go for it.
0: Great. Dr. Neil Shah specializes in obstetrics and gynecology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And you and I have met and chatted a bunch of times now, you know, because we're both kind of hooked up with the same nonprofits that work in maternal health.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. Where are you? You're in Boston, right?
1: I am. It is a very cold day in Boston right now.
0: Cold? What? What is cold? What are um, we talking about?
1: I mean, it's like, it's 30s. It could be much worse, and I fully recognize that, but it was, mm. uh, you know, it was summer, like, you know, just... Last week. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'm hanging out in, you know, 40 to 50 degree, dank, drippy, rainy weather here in Portland. hmm Yeah, so.
1: Well, you have good coffee, so at least you've got that.
0: We do, and it's super green here. So, you know, when we get to these dark, drippy months, I have to remind myself that. And sometimes it helps.
1: (laughs) I've got to tell you, I mean, last time I was out in Portland, um, I got to visit OHSU, and Mm -hmm. I went up their tram and looked at Mount Hood, and I, like, just couldn't. I had, like, Stumptown coffee and was insanely jealous.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, and you fell in love with our city.
1: I did. But they reminded me that it's not always that gorgeous all the time, which made me feel a lot better.
0: Well, if you were up up on the hill at OHSU and you could see Mount Hood, then it was clearly a sunny day. Yes. Is the very best possible way to see Portland. And you were here in the summer, right?
1: I was, yeah.
0: That was very smart of you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Neil, now that you know, we've chatted just for a second, let's start with our big hard question. Who are you and what do you do?
1: Um, Well, uh, I guess that's an existential question that I'm still working through. But Mm -hmm. um, I'm an OBGYN by training, and Mm -hmm. I spend some of my time seeing patients with the whole breadth of our field, which is really only limited by the fact that we take care of women and not men. But Mm -hmm. in every other way, I mean, we do primary care. Often pregnancy is a woman's first kind of physiologic stress test. So we uncover a lot of diabetes and hypertension and and, uh, all of that. And at the same time, we do emergency surgery on the complete opposite spectrum. And then we get to deliver babies, which is really fun. So I do the the full breath um, and um, I spend some of my time doing that. And then caring for patients motivates a lot of the other work that I do, which is to think about how we can better care for all patients. Mm -hmm. And I do that through a role at... um, Ariadne Labs, which is an institute at Harvard that uh, Atul Gawande founded that thinks about how we can not just try and diagnose what might be wrong in the healthcare system, but actually intervene. It's a very surgeon mentality. Um, So how do you go into these complex health systems and then design and then test and then scale uh, improvements? So we've been thinking together about how we do that in maternal health.
0: Mm -hmm. You said a couple of things just in answering that question that I'm interested in. Um, one of them is that, you know, as an obstetrician, you're often working with women who are, um, you know, they're just at a, a discovery stage about what their health is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's interesting. That's, that's, uh, that's so true.
1: I mean, our patients are different. A lot of health policy is driven by, uh, considerations of the Medicare population because Medicare pays for half of healthcare. care. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, thankfully there's not a lot of over 65ers having babies. So a lot of the healthcare system is sort of optimized for a very different patient population than the one that I care for. But at the same time, um, yeah, I mean like most people's first hospitalization ever is when they have a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there are a lot of people who are young and otherwise healthy and don't have a reason to be in contact with the healthcare system until they become pregnant. Right. Um, and so, yeah, being that sort of first port of call is part of what's so exciting, I think, about the field.
0: Yeah. Now, you also mentioned a surgeon's mentality, and I've actually heard you talk about um, how obstetricians who are surgeons think. And I've heard you talk about it in a number of different um, environments. And so, I'm just, I'm interested that you used that term to discuss your work with um, repairing the healthcare system.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, surgeons want to do something, yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. know that's not always the right move. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I think that like most things are, are are two sides of any issue. Like when we when patients get harmed in our healthcare system, they can get harmed in basically two ways. It's mm-hmm. when we um, do too little uh, or when we do too much, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the best surgeons are not necessarily the ones that are the most technically capable. They're usually the ones that have the best judgment about when to act and when not to.
0: Yeah, yeah, which is a fine distinction.
1: Yep, definitely.
0: Well, you left a, you left a couple things out of your bio that I'm going to go ahead and hit on because okay. I think they're pretty fascinating. Um, You're also a brand new father. and. Yes. You're a bit of a rabble rouser in the obstetric industry with all your talk about crazy things like healthcare safety and evidence-based medicine and, you know, the cavalcade of interventions that happen. So let's talk about that a little bit. Which one do you want to tackle first, being a rabble rouser or being a dad?
1: Um, uh, we can take them in either order. Um, I think, you know, being a dad is a new thing for me. I have less insight into that, except that it's just extremely humbling And, um, you know, after delivering thousands of babies, I had, you know, my whole job was like hand the baby back. And I had very little idea of like what it's actually like to have to keep a human being alive, you know, afterwards. I feel like at my postpartum visits, I should be handing out medals now. (laughs) Um, It's, uh, uh, you know, but um, in terms of being a rabble rouser, I, I think to some extent I am, but not because I care about patient safety and affordability and experience. I think that everyone that works on the front lines of healthcare delivery has good intentions and mm-hmm. wants what's best for patients. But I think that um, sometimes I do get perceived as a rabble rouser because I, I think I don't look like the uh, stereotypical woman's health or maternal health advocate. I'm, you know, I'm a dude, I mean, I, um, I'm relatively young. Mm-hmm. So I, like whippersnapper and rabble rouser get used interchangeably. Um, yeah, but the,
0: whippersnapper, that's somebody who's old, I think rabble rouser. Oh, well, I, I, get,
1: I get whippersnapper from like, basically the, the generation of like, like a different generation of OBs to sort of look at me as like the young person. And they're like, oh, you know, um, you're stirring the pot. And it, it, it's partially, I think, because like a lot of my colleagues, when I, when I was a resident, you know, I was in the class of 11 people, which is actually a large OB residency. And most of them were women, mm-hmm. and, um, And most of my colleagues were people who always were interested in women's health and, you know, were, they're just like, there's a whole archetype. Like they were in sororities, they, you know, were involved in um, pushing for reproductive rights in college. And like, that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to do OB. I found it by accident. And um, because I was a little bit different, I think I always sort of looked at our field sideways.
0: You found it by accident? I mean, while you were in training?
1: Yeah, I mean, so my favorite class in medical school was anatomy because uh, you got to see how the body is sort of put together and then I remember thinking that I wanted to be a surgeon and I did my surgery rotation and was really disappointed by the fact that like, you know, surgery is not anatomy. Like in anatomy, you can like bisect a heart in half and then pick it up and look at it and see what's happening inside. In surgery, you're just looking at one tiny window, you're like staring at the gallbladder for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's like much less exciting. Um, But what you do in your third year of medical school is you rotate through all the different fields. Um, And my third year of medical school was like anatomy for the healthcare system, because your job as a third year medical student is to open every door in the hospital and figure out what happens inside. Mm -hmm. And I just found that so totally fascinating, like the the full extent of our capabilities in medicine and also the full extent of our fallibilities in medicine. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing OBGYN as my first rotation on purpose to get it over with. Cause it was the one thing that I was so sure I was never going to do. And, um, I really liked it, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty enthusiastic about most things. So I was like, well, maybe I'll like everything else just as much. And in the end, I had a really hard time picking a field and I ended up picking OBGYN because it was my way of not having to choose. I felt like you know, the only thing I'd have to give up was treating men. But other than that, you know, I can ultrasound, I can do primary care, I can do surgery, I can deliver babies. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that's how I ended up. (laughs) um, And I liked the people, I think, you know, the kinds of clinicians who care for women are a little bit more in tune with social justice issues. It's not that, you know, general surgeons don't care. But I think, you know, the obstetricians and midwives that I met wore it on their sleeves in a way that made me want to be around them.
0: You know, I think so too, and I think it's because, you know, when you when you work with people who are having babies, it's messy business. It's real life stuff, and you know, it's not as I mean, it's so much of what we do as bedside care providers um, is we're interacting on a really human basis at one of the most primal times of a family's life that's really different than surgery, (laughs) you know, where your patient is anesthetized. You do a specific task, very orderly and sterile, and then you move on. That's Uh, not how it is with obstetrics. It's a mess, it's great.
1: (laughs) I think that's accurate, yeah. And I think compared to other things that I did in medical school, I felt like, um, I mean, you see a woman like 13, 14 times in a nine month period. You get to know them reasonably well. And like you said, it's like, you know, your reason for spending time together is around this really pivotal life moment. So you get to know them in a different way and um, be there during a moment that's, uh, you know, a critical moment in their lives. So
0: how did your perspective on prenatal care and you know the labor and delivery environment change um, with your own baby being born?
1: That's a good question. I um, well, so one thing was during the prenatal care period, uh, Julie saw my boss. Um, her name is Tony Golan. At Be- at Beth is deaconess. She's the medical director of our labor floor and is like in charge of quality and safety. So we're we're like very much aligned, and uh, it's a doctor that I like. You know, Tony is someone who I tremendously respect and trust, and. Um, was really lucky to have the agency to be able to send Julie to Tony because uh, Julie and, T- and Tony together decided that uh, it would be best to deloop loop me from prenatal care so I wouldn't meddle, and it was oh. probably for the best. Ooh. juicy and, stuff! And then um, when Julie came in in labor, uh, we um, you know we delivered at my hospital, which again like is a huge privilege uh, mm-hmm. because. Um, Actually, what what it was is, it was more than being able to pick our OB, it was probably being able to pick our nurse. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is, probably matters more than anything else, uh, but uh, most people don't have a basis for picking their nurse or the agency to pick their nurse. And mm-hmm. I picked our nurse and it ended up making like all the difference in the world, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always, it, it was just such a wonderful thing. when you know, When I worked in labor and delivery for all those years, when one of our doctors or, or um, our colleagues or our nurses or the lab tech or, you know, somebody that one of our colleagues, when they were welcoming a baby into their lives, it was such a privilege to be in that delivery room. And it was such an overlapping of how our relationships in this department. I mean, we spend our lives together. I spent there were 10 years there where I spent more nights um, with my fellow nurses than I did with my husband.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So when I, I had um, two of my, my two youngest children at uh, Providence hospital here in Portland, and I was able to pick my nurse and I picked the care providers that I knew would be most supportive. And there's so many dynamics going on there. It's rich stuff. And it was wonderful.
1: It's an awesome thing. I mean, there's a thing about labor and delivery for sure, where um it's much more of a family atmosphere than other you know I, I've I've worked on med surge floors in hospitals I've worked in different parts you know and uh yeah labor and delivery is special and uh yeah it was it was a really cool thing I mean our baby had a ticker tape parade when he was born so
0: <laughs> That's sweet yeah. yeah All went well?
1: All went well yeah I mean um I think I mostly behaved I like, my job was not to deliver the baby. Julie was, like, very clear about that. Um, but, you know, we, we had a, like, um, Luca, our son, came about four weeks early, which was, oh. you know, um, unexpected. But, uh, you know, like, if, if you have to be born early four weeks, it's not too bad. Um, so, but it caught us off guard. And then um, we, um, but, you know, technically he was preterm, so it kind of changed uh our thinking and and planning around the pregnancy mm-hmm. um and 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 how we sort of thought about risk because you know as you know Jeannie, i spent a lot of time thinking about how we keep normal normal yeah. <laughs> and um we were sort of right on that borderline where my like surgeon obstetrician instincts were like kicking into full year but mm-hmm. um in the end uh, julie did great uh she had a really long second stage she pushed for six hours Whoa. um which is a testament to her stubbornness.
0: Yeah, good um, for her.
1: But we had a really great nurse who supported her through it. Um, and, uh, you know, in the end, we had a healthy baby. So you can ask for more than that.
0: Excellent. That's really good. I mean, you can actually ask for more than that. When, yeah. One of the things that people are always saying is, well, you got a healthy baby. So that, you know, what else do you want? Well, you want a healthy mom. You want a family that feels like they made it through the experience whole and well and respected and it sounds like you got that
1: you know what that's a very good point i completely agree with you about that yeah. and i think one of the challenges with uh, childbirth is that you don't really have anything to compare it to even when you've delivered babies before and it's your second time around i mean i think there is this like denominator where you're like well if the baby's fine then it's the mom's job to just be resilient right <laughs> um, But, uh, and I think often that's how C-sections get justified and, um, you know, interventions that might not always be necessary, but I think that's a really good point. And it's to the extent that, uh, you know, when I'm in the dog park and I have my OBGYN fleece on in Mm -hmm. like the Boston 30 degree weather, as I just Mm -hmm. was a little while ago, and, Uh you know, a complete stranger sees that I'm an OB, they tell me their birth story because it matters to them that much. Like you don't forget that. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, when people hear that I'm a labor nurse, it's, you know, two or three seconds before they start telling me centimeter by centimeter their labor story. And right. often <laughs> the people that are telling you that it's, um you know, it's the women or their partners or spouses who are still feeling traumatized. They're still remembering it. Yeah. Minute by minute. That's where they are. And, yeah. you know, you don't often they don't often come to you and say, oh, yeah, it was great. No, it was hard. It was labor, but everything went well. Instead, you hear the other story.
1: I think that's right, too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, er- everybody has a birth story, and, like, we have ours now. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think um, it's 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 always interesting to hear people reflect back on that experience. And I think really for everybody, it's um, a relatively short amount of time in the span of your life, but people remember it uh, uh, minute too. to minute. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. For a while. You remember it minute to minute for a while.
1: And then I Unless- think you get amnesia about the next couple of weeks, because I think everybody lied to me about like having a baby. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's like the greatest. And it's like, you know, but the first like two months are rough for sure. Yeah, like it's are. it's great, but it's like tough. And I think uh, I remember like being a couple weeks into it thinking like, I can't believe this is how the human species is pro- perpetuated it. And I was like, Oh, it's just because people lie to each other. They're like, Oh, it's fine. You know?
0: Well, one of the questions that I I like to ask is how would you answer the question? Nobody ever told me that. Mm. And so you're sort of doing that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for sure, um, we, uh, there, there's, I want to be careful here a little bit, but I think there's, um, generally when we think about maternal health, um, we, it's at least for me, my optics were like nine months mm-hmm. and moms are moms like, you know, like the real work starts after that. And there's like another 18 years at least, and plus. Oh,
0: you much more than that. Much more I'm, than that, right? I met your mom. She's still your mom.
1: That's right. You did meet my mom. I mean, it's like a, for the rest of your life thing. And I think that we, I spent a lot of time thinking about how we underinvest in motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about it through the lens of maternal health care. But um, I think one of the shifts in my perspective has been that uh, we could be doing a much better job of supporting moms afterwards, too. And that means um, really investing in ways that we don't right now. Um, One of the things I'm a little bit heartened by is that uh, paid parental leave seems to be a bipartisan issue. At Um, the moment. At the moment. I but I, I really think that that's the thing where there is a window of opportunity to, to move that needle. And I actually think it's probably our best vehicle for drawing attention to the rest of the challenges that we have in maternal health.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I hope that listeners are, um, who are you know, people that are listening to us today hear that and say, oh, we have a window of opportunity. Let's jump on this and become advocates. That's yeah. the kind of stuff that moves things forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've kind of hinted around you know, some of the things that you are pretty big in the media right now talking about. Um, you know, you and I have talked on a number of occasions about the C-section um, rate in the United States and, you know, increasingly around the world that is just way too high. Um, we've talked about, you know, healthcare costs. We've talked about evidence-based um, medicine so when you're looking at the big picture of OB care in, the, in America right now, what issues are most important to you?
1: Definitely my biggest concern about our maternal health system in the United States right now is that we may be hurting the, a large swath of the healthy majority in the interest of helping the sickest minority of patients. Um, if let's that makes start, sense.
0: Let's back up and talk about that a little bit more. Yeah.
1: So that sounds really abstract, but basically like our whole maternal health system is optimized for like the sickest, most complicated people. And that's true about our healthcare system in general. But one of the things that makes pregnancy and childbirth different is that the majority are healthy people who are going through a normal physiologic process. Um, And our system is not well designed for those people. It's best designed, like if you, you know, I have good friends who had Mono mono twins, uh, and we're living in the UK. And that's a healthcare system that we often think of with a little bit of envy because there's, you know, everybody has access to care. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing about their healthcare system is, is optimized for the average person. Yeah. And they weren't average. They were like they had really high risk pregnancy, and the care that they got was different from the care that they would have gotten in Boston. And so. If you've got a pregnancy complication, like there's probably no better place to be. Like you can be as patriotic as you want to be Mm
0: -hmm. about
1: the United States, but if you're like Mm -hmm. a normal person, I'm not sure that we are the best place to be, and I worry that because our system um, is so focused on the sickest people that we might be actually hurting people who are normal.
0: Right, and so you know, one of the things that we talk about is sort of the obstetric model of care versus the midwifery model of care. And you and I have talked about it. It's not necessarily the roles, it's the model. And um, the midwifery model of care, which is the foundation of care in the UK system, like you said, emphasizes care for the normal patient. Whereas here in the United States, what is it, 94% of patients deliver in hospitals with obstetricians? it's Ninety nine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, ninety
1: percent have hospital. obstetricians, and ninety nine percent are, yeah. Um, right. In the hospital, and
0: hospitals are akin to intensive care units. Labor units have, you know, one or two of their own designated operating rooms. There's more technology going on there than NASA. I mean, it's it's not a normal environment. It's a medical intensive care environment.
1: Well, the, Yeah, that's true. The labor floor at really any hospital has all the capabilities of the cardiac ICU. They yeah. have one-to-one nursing, they have, which means like one nurse per patient. They have mm-hmm. uh, vital sign tracking. They have medicines that they adjust minute to minute. The mm-hmm. only difference between a labor floor and in ICU is that the labor floor has operating rooms attached to it. So it's actually right. the most intense treatment area of the hospital for the healthiest patients. And then like, you know, the reason that we have all that surveillance is because our tolerance for risk in pregnancy is understandably low. Um, yeah, very low. what we have to be able to wrap our minds around though, is that we're at a point where, um, and this has all been in the very near term in one generation of moms, we've gone, we've increased our C-section rate by 500%. And the long-term consequences are, you know, we're, they they could be i mean at the the least where about half of those people are getting 12 centimeter incisions on their abdomen that they might not need and that that's a fair Mm -hmm. amount of harm in itself because you don't see surgical complications when you don't operate (laughs) and um, as a surgeon like that's something that we see like you know you see threefold major surgical complications from hemorrhage to sepsis to all kinds of bad things um but more importantly i mean like taking care of a newborn with a 12 centimeter incision that you didn't need just sucks um,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, and then and so
0: many other surgeries are now, you know, microsurgeries, laparoscopic surgeries, right. tiny little half-inch incisions, but you can't deliver a baby through that.
1: Right? Yeah, the the laparoscopic C-section is not going to be a thing anytime soon, as far as no, I can it's see. Never going to be a thing. <laughs> um, and, and then the thing that actually worries me most—it's like a optics issue. It's like very similar to the climate change challenge, where like you have to really step back and take the long view to see the harm we're doing, because. Yeah. um,
0: it's you know normalized
1: it, it not only is it normalized, that's a thing too. like my startle reflex as a resident was to do a c-section and I didn't mm-hmm. think much of it. you know it was mm-hmm. totally normal that one in three human beings came out through a major abdominal incision mm-hmm. but the the big picture is that the maternal mortality rate in the u s has been going up for twenty years with a trend line. It's not just that it's been going up it's it's been going up steadily for twenty years yeah. and um, we don't have a great explanation for it uh, but one of the things that we know is that there's a condition that C-sections cause called placenta accreta where the placenta gets uh, stuck within the scar of a old C-section and doesn't detach normally. Mm-hmm. And that's a disaster because the placenta is a big bag of blood vessels. It's getting 25% of everything the heart's pumping and then women bleed a ton. Yeah. Uh, and the number one cause of maternal mortality in the US is hemorrhage. Right. And we have increased the rates of placenta accreta by 1,200%. Uh, no, because of 1,200%, it's gone up 12-fold as a result of the C-sections we're doing. Okay.
0: Um,
1: and, uh, you know, there's there's some data that suggests that this is a difference of, you know, hundreds of women dying per year in the, in the U.S. alone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, um, yeah. yeah, it's...
0: when I, When I talk to people that are more focused on the... The global maternal health picture, one of their concerns is that as we are increasing women's access to maternal health care in developing countries, we're also seeing that many of these health care systems are modeling themselves after the United States, yeah. and women are getting more and more c sections but they're getting them in environments where... You know, maybe they don't have a blood bank. Maybe they don't have consistent electricity. Maybe they don't have, you know, an obstetrician available. Right. Yeah. I
1: mean, I have a colleague in Botswana where they, um, you know, most of the clinicians do the equivalent of like a one-year apprenticeship and then are out in the field, like in the bush. And yeah. um, they're the ones doing C-sections and also repairing appendici- <laughs> appendices and doing everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, the only thing worse than doing too many C-sections is doing too many unsafe C-sections, mm-hmm. uh, where you don't have you know, the right antibiotics and the blood that you need. And uh, the, the real challenge with it is that um, it's very hard to get the rational middle ground And actually, you know, because once you build the infrastructure, often countries and health systems will swing way far in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Um, In the U.S., I actually think that we are combining the problems of the first world and the third world into a perfect storm. Because on one hand, like, you know, we have all the technology that you mentioned and like we we can do C-sections relatively safely, but we do because of that, we do too many of them. Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, like we also have tremendous access problems. We have like, you know, critical access hospitals in Arkansas, Nebraska, even up in the Northeast corridor and the Northwest, uh, mm-hmm. where they do less than two hundred and fifty deliveries a year. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that they do less than one delivery a day. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily have all the capabilities to do things safely, and then women have to drive three to four hours to get to them.
0: Right. right. Yeah. It's. We often talk about, you know, the big problems that women face around the world, but we're actually facing many of the same problems, and they have to do with transportation and limited availability of providers and economic issues. It's all the same issues. It's just, as you mentioned, you know, earlier on, it's an issue of too much and too little.
1: It's tough. I went to a hospital in South Dakota like a year and a half ago now where... Um, you know, it was in Sioux Falls, and it was the most beautiful hospital I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like palatial, um, you know, uh, just gorgeous hospital. And then people were driving three to four hours to get there, <laughs> and it, it just like it just struck me that, you know, and because of that, like they didn't get adequate prenatal care often. Um, and then when they did show up, it was just so ironic that uh, they were getting, you know, first world care and then they show up and then, or they were getting third world care and they show up and they're getting like first world care all of a sudden and they, they get the harms of that as well.
0: Yeah. And also I know that a lot of women who live many miles or hours away from their delivering facility, their hospital, that's going to deliver them. Um, you know, if it's their second or third baby, you know, Three or four hours in a car in labor could mean the difference of delivering at the side of the road or delivering in your hospital. So they will um, sign up for inductions that may not be technically medically um, necessary, but it's situationally necessary. And then maybe the induction doesn't go well, and so then they need a C-section. You know?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's the story that I heard a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I know and- that. I live within a stone's throw of three or four major medical centers here in Portland but when I was having baby number 3 I had two little girls and you know I had a aging parent to take care of and the idea of the chaos of of waiting for labor that was a huge factor it would be it was much more um it was a much more sane idea to okay let's line up the babysitter let's get the care provider for the old guy And let's schedule an induction and all will be right with the world. You know, I I get that. I understand that. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, I think, uh, and, and you can go like an hour and a half out of Portland into the hood river Valley. And, um, that could be an hour and a half during the summer as we were talking about when it's beautiful and it could be a lot longer when it's not. And it's a challenge, not just for getting the patients to the facility, but then once they're there, I've heard anecdotally, um, you know, if you call in the anesthesiologist and you've got a surgeon there, then they sometimes mm-hmm. think we should just do the C-section while everybody's here and we can. Exactly. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. We've got everybody here. We probably could, you know, get a safe vaginal delivery in another several hours, but we're all here. Right. We all let's just, do, let's just cut to the chase.
1: Right. And the key for keeping normal, normal and uh, rationalizing our C-section rates is patients. I mean, and mm-hmm. that's That's the whole challenge. And in fact, a lot of the the current clinical guidance to decrease C-section rates, there's a lot of consensus right now that C-section rates are too high and there's, um, just like there's a window of opportunity to try and get paid parental leave in this country uh, Mm -hmm. to be better, I think there's a huge window to try and uh, get every stakeholder to coordinate their efforts to decrease C-section rates right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can tell you more about why I think that, but Mm -hmm. one one of the limits right now is that you know, our professional societies have stepped up. Um, ACNM, is the American College of Nurse Midwives, has stepped up. The American College of OBGYN has stepped up and issued guidelines for what to do. And mm-hmm. they largely boil down to being more patient. Um, mm-hmm. And what they fail to recognize, or they do not I think that might be too strong, what they don't take into account uh, are the things that you and I are talking about, like why patience is a hard thing to achieve, what it is about the setup of the system that makes it harder for that nurse or doctor or midwife to let somebody labor as long as they need to
0: mm-hmm. there are a lot of different factors involved
1: yep yeah,
0: yeah. um you've also been really pretty vocal about you know, issues around the cost of maternal health care and how it and not only the cost of it but the quality of maternal health care how it varies from hospital to hospital and state to state and um, you know I wondered if you would talk about that a little bit
1: yeah, sure. I mean, so in 2016, a woman's number one risk factor for the most common major surgery performed on humans, which is a C-section, mm-hmm. is not her personal risks or preferences, but which hospital she goes to. That's insane. Like, yeah. You know, the hospital itself is a risk factor um, for C-section rates and really like many things in healthcare, infection, like lots of things that we care about. And as a mm-hmm. result, all of the measurement that's happening uh, for the quality of health care that we receive in this country is happening at the hospital level. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you can look up your doctor online and you'll see like, you know, patient ratings and things like that. But Mm -hmm. in terms of really, uh, measuring, not just sort of satisfaction with experience, but actual quality of care, it's Mm -hmm. not at the doctor level. It's at the hospital level. Mm -hmm. And, um,
0: it's been difficult to get that information until recently, until until recently.
1: That's right. So public reporting in healthcare is becoming more of a thing. Um, I think, um, the leapfrog group and consumer reports in the last year or two have done a really great job of trying to get things like C-section rates out to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, but then the hard thing is, you know, if you're a patient, uh, knowing what to do with that information can be tough because one, like you've got to go find it. It's not conveniently brought to you and it's not easy to dig through. And then like we found in some of the research that we did that um, it's it's kind of hard to know if like a 15% C-section rate is really that different from a 20% C-section rate. Like what level of difference matters. Yeah. Um, and then uh, how to trade that off against the other things that make you go to a hospital. Most people don't pick a hospital. They pick a doctor or a midwife. Um, there's probably some wisdom in picking a hospital. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot, sort of a lot out there. Like most people don't realize that the person they see in the office is not likely to be the person who delivers their baby.
0: Right, and the hospital is where the culture of care gets really entrenched. Because even if you choose a provider, a doctor or a midwife who is really well aligned with your birth goals and your birth plans, when you get to the hospital, the hospital has a bigger say in what how things are gonna go down. And if it's a hospital hospital where... C-sections are just part of the culture, and the doctors there all accept it, and the nurses all know that's what's going to happen, then an awful lot of that labor and delivery experience is, you know, I'm talking about hospitals where maybe the C-section rate is 50% or higher. That You know, it's not because they have 50% population of patients who are really high risk. It's because it's the culture of care.
1: That's right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... The, part of the opportunity that we have right now is uh, that because C section rates vary from 7 to 70%, it's tenfold from hospital to hospital.
0: Yeah. Uh, with and, the same patient populations, in the, the same, same cities.
1: That's right. So it, yeah. it turns out that all the conventional explanations for what might be accounting for those differences don't bear out.
0: They're too uh, old, they're too heavy. They're having, right. yeah, all of that.
1: When we look at the 500% increase in C section rates over the last generation of moms, you know, there's more obesity and hypertension and diabetes and moms are older, all that's true, but in spite of all that, it explains very little. Like C-section rates have gone up in 18-year-olds at the same rate it's gone up in 35-year-olds. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, people think it's medical malpractice or reimbursement rates or that women want the C-sections and really none of that shakes out. And so what you're left with is it's something about the hospital itself. And when we've been trying to figure out, you know, what is it about the hospital, most people say that it has something to do with the hospital culture which i think Mm -hmm. is true Mm -hmm. but the challenge with that is that culture is a really hard thing to measure and intervene on and And so right and 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 change so what what we've done is we've spent a lot of time uh, you know opening up the hood and looking inside hospitals and trying to understand what makes the 70 percenters different from seven percenters and we found that one way of doing it is to think about the way the labor and delivery unit is managed Mm -hmm. um, as a way of operationalizing what people mean by culture. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: how much do you think the power dynamic between doctors and nurses matters?
1: I think it matters a tremendous amount. Um, But I I think that um, if I had to bet, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that the doctor you get is a probably an independent risk factor for getting a C-section. We see mm-hmm. that, yeah. um, and in fact, when you look at the seventy percent hospitals, it's usually driven by like two people who are like way off the wagon, you know, um, like to, meaning nurses, like the well nurses, on the, on the yeah. doctor's side, it's like two doctors who are like doing way too many C-sections. Yeah. On the nursing side, you know, there's a gut sense that I mean, the idea that nurses are a big uh, determinant of your outcome makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something that's actually been like well established or studied, and so I'm working with a nurse actually, uh, at Boston College named Joyce Edmonds, who uh, has proposed that we start to look at nurse-specific C-section rates. Oh, um,
0: Joyce, I'll be calling her. We'll want uh, to talk about that.
1: <laughs> okay, I will. I will be happy to connect you. Um, she's brilliant and uh, brave, I think, in taking this stand because it's not super popular, um, and uh, it's controversial because. Uh, many nurses will say, number one, we're not the one that makes the call at the end of the day, and number two, uh, it's the, the whole attribution issue. Like, is it the nurse that was there at the very end of labor or the person who was there the longest? Um, so we have a project together where we're trying to come up with a method of connecting the nurse to the C-section rate, uh, looking at how much difference there is. At one of our local hospitals, we found that the nurse that you get can be a three-fold increase in your odds of getting a C-section. Um, and then trying to figure out what it is about that nurse.
0: Well, I, you know, having been that nurse, I know that, um, a lot of nurses are, so there, it's the fear factor. It's the fear factor is what it is. You know, anybody who's had a bad outcome knows that, um, whether it was your fault or not, your name is on that chart and you are going to be scrutinized in the most uncomfortable ways in front of hospital administrators and teams of attorneys and it is scary stuff and if you are a nurse you are further down the totem pole than a doctor nurses don't generate income nurses are a hospital expense because they have to pay our salaries right doctors generate income and i think that you know any of us who are speaking the truth here know that money is power That an awful lot of what goes on in the obstetrics industry has to do with the economic piece. And that is not a place where nurses hold much um, power. But also, we're really, really held responsible for anything that happens. So if you see something going wrong with your patient and your gut says you could be in, you know, have to sit in front of the panel if this goes down, you're going to make the call to the doctor. Once that nurse has made that call and it's documented on the chart, that's part of the medical record. And that doctor has got to do something, you know, cause in case we go to court, there it is written down.
1: It's a tough thing. I mean, because nurses don't bill, it's actually really hard to study this. That's actually one oh. of the reasons why it hasn't been studied because the only data that we have comes from what you bill for. Right. Um, so you can connect doctors to C-sections much harder to do with nurses, but, um, oh. you know, you're right about everything that you said, of course, 80% of the cost of running a labor floor is nursing staff. Yeah, we're expensive. Um, We're expensive. But then if you think about like, you know, the untapped capacity in healthcare, it's definitely nursing. There's three and a half million nurses in this country. They're, um, nurses are the most trustworthy profession. Like Mm -hmm. it goes nurses, firefighters, and doctors in that order. Um,
0: before teachers. Really?
1: Yeah, apparently. That's what I hear. And then, you know, nurses spend the most time at the bedside. They know the patient the best. Um, You know, just a tremendous opportunity to um, think about how we can better activate nurses and uh, help labor floors. Actually, a lot of the answer, I think, to C-section rates and so many things in maternal health uh, in terms of quality and safety is getting nurse staffing levels right. Um, And right now, actually, because nurse labor and delivery is so so different, the way that you set your nurse staffing levels is by looking at your uh, patient census at midnight, Yep. um, which makes no sense because you can have zero patients at midnight and have just delivered five patients. Yeah. Um, And so part of what we're trying to dig into is how we can start to fix some of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I used to do um, night shift charge. And part of my job when I was in charge of the unit at night, But then I was also in charge of making sure that I had enough nurses on staff the next day. Right. And so you have your base of of staff nurses, and I can't remember now if that was seven that were always there or 10 or whatever. Then you had your on-call nurses who would get, you'd call them in to work the shift. Right. And you didn't call them, if you didn't call them for the shift, then that nurse would take standby. Right. Great, But then once you called her, you know, maybe an hour or two hours into the shift, she got time and a half for the rest of that.
1: Day. Right. Right. And, so the poor nurse manager has to figure, I think actually nurse managers of labor and delivery floors probably have one of the hardest jobs in healthcare because if you understaff, you're unsafe. Yeah. If you overstaff, you're hemorrhaging money. Right. Um, and uh, you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, what's interesting to me though is that restaurants and hotels have the same problem and mm-hmm. they have figured it out, you know, mm-hmm. Like, you know, they, they also have uncertainty about when their customers are going to show up and how long they're going to take. And, um, and a lot of the tools that, uh, you know, like charge nurses often act like air traffic controllers without Mm -hmm. an air traffic controllers tools, you know, they've got to figure out which nurse goes to which patient, which patient goes to which bed. And they have to shuffle the deck every few hours because everything's different.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I think supporting the charge nurse, particularly in the middle of the night, may be a big part of the answer to fixing things.
0: Yeah. It was a fun gig for a long time, though. I got to tell you, that was that was a fun gig. You know, it was middle of the night on a crazy, you know, like a full moon Friday night where right. it's all going to hell and hand good. And when you're, you know, you know that actually you're, you're doing it. You're making this work. You're you know, that's a good feeling.
1: Well, there is a personality type that thrives in chaos. And I think what we're figuring out is that you've got that personality type.
0: I guess I do. I guess I do. Yeah. So, um, before we wrap this up and you and I, I feel like you and I could talk a lot and I hope that we will be able to record podcasts going forward. Lots and lots. Sure, Anytime. Oh, good. Good. Um, but you know, one thing that I wanted to talk about before we we wrap up is there was a social media post, I don't know, was was it a month ago or so where a woman posted how she had been billed by her hospital for skin to skin contact (laughs) and, um, You know, there are actually, you know, the the public outrage was, oh, my God, they're charging you to hold your baby now, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, And that was what mostly people were saying. But then there were doctors and nurses that were chiming in saying, yeah, but that is how we're structured. We're not structured to have, you know, we have to have an extra nurse in there while you're having your C-section so that she can hold the baby to your your chest. You know, what, I just wanted to get your comments and your thoughts about that particular thing.
1: Right. OK, so basically um, a family gets a bill. This is where a healthcare system works. You go in, you get care and then you get a bill like weeks later. And most of the people who are making decisions about how to care for you have no insight into how their decisions impact what you pay. Um, mm-hmm. And when you get the bill, like the bill rarely makes any sense. Most of the line mm-hmm. items aren't even in plain English. And then when you look at the prices, they're like not connected at all to either how you value the thing or um you know uh what With you actually end up paying value. right yeah
0: 20 so, bucks for a tile
1: right exactly um so so anyway this this like poor couple gets this bill and uh like 39 it's 39.95 for skin to skin and uh 39.95 is not a large amount of money in the context of medical billing where things turn into the thousands and tens of thousands like a, the average vaginal delivery in this country is like $14,000, you know? So mm-hmm. 39.95 is like a drop in the bucket, but there was a line item on this bill that said 39.95 for skin to skin. And it, what it seemed like to the patient is that they were being charged for having their baby handed back to them. Yeah. Um, and of course, this got like a, a huge viral pickup and, uh, the wall street journal and com and all these people were all over this. And, yeah. um, I guess my take on it is that uh what it reflects is not and then you know, of course the community was like well you know it's a, it it to have a nurse be present in the operating room to be able to safely hand a baby back within a sterile field is a cost um mm-hmm. which brings it back to what we were just talking about um but you know what the first thing is it doesn't cost 3995 for that nurse like I mean the way that that service gets connected to a price um doesn't make any sense to normal human beings. And then like the fact that they itemize that as a line item is more the problem. Um, I like thirty nine ninety
0: five. like it's the Walmart special of the week.
1: Right. I mean like there's so many things that they didn't itemize. They weren't like the, you know, the IV that we put in you and they didn't make that a line. They didn't like walking you to your room. They didn't charge that out as a service. And it, yeah. what it illustrates to me is just how broken our um, medical billing system is with regard to transparency, uh, to patients. Like it's really not built in a way that's patient friendly. And we're the only service industry where we don't actually have to like satisfy our customers. It's kind of crazy. I
0: know, And we don't know what the, what the price is for the product we're purchasing. Well, that's the thing. I mean,
1: 2016 is the least affordable healthcare has been in the last half century. And, uh, Despite providing the most expensive services that the average American will spend money on in their entire lifetime, uh, people like me can't tell anybody what anything costs Mm -hmm. at the point of service. And I think we're getting to a point where the American public feels like that's outrageous. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that is reflected in their angst, I think, uh, you know, a few weeks out from the election.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And I think
0: a lot of angst there.
1: Right. And this is an apolitical statement, but, the, the, you know, the Affordable Care Act, which will go through some transformation in the coming next hundred days or so, mm-hmm. um, it did some things really well. Uh, but one thing that it did not necessarily do is make care more affordable for the average American uh, because, you know, you can get insurance, but that's just your ticket to the show. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, healthcare costs are still going up. Um right right so
0: we still have a ways to go here and i am nothing if not ridiculously idealistic so even in the current political climate that we're facing i'm going to persevere that it's going to be okay i think that
1: that's right i think (laughs) most level-headed people believe that and uh even with regard to the affordable care act which is something that i was so deeply invested in that now Mm may be going through some changes i think that um Well, what the president said, who was probably the most invested person in it, is that if they replace it with something that works better, he'll be the first to congratulate them. And I don't think he was being facetious. I think he was being genuine. And I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing to to be idealistic about this, as I am on most things. But (laughs) I'm invested here. Yeah. Well, Neil, I'm going to ask you our final question. Okay. Where are you in your life as a parent?
1: I am uh, 11 weeks in to uh, being a parent of our first baby and um, a couple hours away from putting that baby in a car and driving it down uh, the main highway and the Northeastern corridor. And we're gonna see along with everybody else and their families. So we'll see how that, that goes.
0: Are you going to your family's or Julie's family?
1: We do both. So her family's in Connecticut and my family's in New Jersey. So we do like a little tour of the Eastern seaboard.
0: And exactly how long is this road trip with baby how many hours in the car
1: well it, it's it just depends on how many other people have the same idea but it can be um if we're lucky it'll be five hours that's what we'll hope for
0: okay okay good luck first thank road you trip, first road trip
1: it is our first big road trip yeah yeah
0: you're gonna be okay
1: i think <laughs> so we're gonna have a car packed to the gills with a puppy and a baby and uh it should be it should be a good time
0: You've got a puppy and a baby at the same time.
1: We do. Yeah. I mean, well, the puppy preceded the baby, but, and the puppy is actually three, but. That's okay. So,
0: yeah. I I think you're brilliant, Neil. I do. I think you're brilliant. I think there's no better idea in life than a puppy and a baby at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very good. Well, this has been a real joy to talk to you. Every time we talk, it's, it's fun. I like it.
1: That's very kind, Jeannie. Likewise. Uh, yeah. anytime I look forward to n- the next time we can talk.
0: Okay. And when you see your mom tomorrow, tell her I said, hello. She oh, I, I will. You to talk. And I really enjoyed it. I liked her. I like your mom. I like your mom, Neil.
1: <laughs> she's got spunk. Yeah. So she was at, uh, a fundraiser with me and Jeannie and, uh, was giving out lots of, she's a dentist and uh-huh. from New Jersey. And so she was like, didn't care about any of the celebrities, but was just dishing out lots of dental advice to supermodels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. She's so. <laughs> awesome. I like your mom. Yeah. To me, he was talking about how proud she was of her son. Let me oh. just tell you that. Well, Aww. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well have a happy Thanksgiving tomorrow, Neil, and we will talk again soon.
1: Okay, happy Thanksgiving.
0: Okay, bye bye. Mama said there'll
1: be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said, Mama said, Mama said, Mama said, Mama said, Mama said
0: Today's guest was Dr. Neil Shaw. You can learn more about him at www.scholar.harvard.edu forward slash Shaw forward slash BioCV. You can learn more about me and check out the link to AM Northwest segment this morning. Learn more about the advocacy workshops that I lead over at my website, GeneFaulkner.com. Email me, Gene Jean, at GeneFaulkner.com. Jean Tweet me at Gene Faulkner, subscribe, donate, share, and go buy a copy of the book, will ya? I'm pretty sure it's gonna make a great holiday gift. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced at Sounds Like Picture Studios by Alex Ward right here in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk again next week. Bye bye.